Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to start a three-part series on Glenn Coulthard's Red Skin White Masks, colon, Rejecting the Colonial Politics of Recognition. Now, some of you may know, I live in Montreal, in Canada, and I think that in this context it's certainly important to give a land acknowledgement, but before doing that, just know land acknowledgements don't do very much as far as actually giving to these communities. So I'm gonna include some links in the description of Organize I Donate To, that in, in case you thought of donating anything to me, as I normally plug my own stuff here, considering instead, uh, consider instead giving to indigenous organizations. If you're in Canada, Canadian ones, ones within colonial Canada and the United States, similarly there, colonial in the United States, maybe Australia, anywhere, really, if you have the means to. But Montreal, currently situated on the traditional lands of the Kaneaneaka people, which is comprised of, to name a few, uh, the Haudenosaunee people, the Huron-Wendat people, the Abenaki and the Anishinaabe people, including as well Mohawk nation uh, in this area as well, uh, and Algonquin people. Now, if you don't know whose land you're currently on, if you're in a colonial nation, then it's worth looking into. Uh, if you're if you're interested, you can easily find out if you wanted to know which communities maybe maybe to donate to. And yeah, before jumping into it, if you found this on a podcast platform, you're going to be able to find it on YouTube. If you want the audio there, if you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find just the audio as a podcast, which you know might be preferable, easier to listen to, and so on. And if you want to follow me, you can do that on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. And if you like what I do, you can like, share, subscribe. And uh, yeah, that'd be great. You can see videos are released every week, sometimes twice a week. Uh, I haven't actually explained what I do yet. Uh, I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if that interests you, hit the subscribe button and you'll learn lots. Go check out however many episodes I already have up. So yeah. This three-part series is going to go through the entirety of Red Skin, White Masks by Glenn Coulthard. And the intelligence of this text can't be understated. It's something I hadn't read before, uh, which is embarrassing for me. But this is, like, super important to read. Because um, Coulthard's brilliance can't be understated here. And the subject matter is just so relevant uh, and it's so important to sink our teeth into and to really reckon with because it really makes us culpable for what is currently going on in colonial nations with colonial histories with existing indigenous populations in those places. So the first episode that I do is going to cover the intro in chapter one. The second episode I do is going to cover chapter two and three. And the third episode is going to cover chapters four and five, and the conclusion. Now, despite the length, the many episodes I'll do on this, you know, to be totally honest, like, I'm not even going to be able to really scratch the surface. There's a lot of historical detail here that I'm going to do my absolute best to pay respect to and to really highlight the important points. But to get the full experience, you really need to go and get the book. Uh, I highly recommend it. But in any case here, starting with the introduction titled Subjects, of empire. So for about 40 years, indigenous groups in Canada have centered recognition in their struggle for autonomy. That is centering 
recognition in the eyes of the Canadian state for their struggle for autonomy. Now, Coulthard wrote this book in 2012, 2013. So 40 years before then is really the time period we're thinking of here. Now, Indigenous populations, Indigenous nations within the eyes of the colonial state want their nations, their autonomy, their sovereignty to be recognized and respected by the colonial state. And this is a new development within the history of Canadian relations with Indigenous populations whom they've colonized or whom Canada has colonized. And we'll get into it in a lot more detail, but for now, suffice it to say that for a long time, Canada was just intent on assimilating or murdering Indigenous people, uh, which was just Canadian policy for a, a long time in both direct and indirect ways. So while this turn to recognition might appear to be a good thing, I mean, of course you want to have your sovereignty, your autonomy, your nationhood recognized. Coulthard is suspicious of its acceptance by the colonial state, and he wonders to what extent that this rhetoric of recognition actually works to intensify an unequal correspondence or relationship between colonized people and the colonial state in order to maintain these rigid hierarchies instead of overturning them. Now, this isn't just a Canadian thing. All across the world, Indigenous groups have been fighting in, in recent decades for recognition, for land rights, in the eyes of the colonial states that they currently live under. Now, there are pretty distinct phases, and distinct is maybe a little bit of a harsh word here or too confident of a term here, but there are phases within Canadians, um, Canadian policy about Indigenous peoples, and it has gone many, it has undergone many different changes. Where in the late 60s, the government put forward its um, statement, uh, statement of the Government of Canada on Indian policy, or what is also called the White Paper, which sought to usher in a period of assimilation of Indigenous people. Now, this happened under the leadership of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who, no, no ally to Indigenous people, thought that the best way to improve the lives of Indigenous people was to make it so that they just renounced their culture, renounced their heritage, and just became quote-unquote Canadian, just adopted Canadian beliefs and values. And of course, this like, backfired like, like nothing else, because you can't just force people to assimilate in, in such a way. It is going to be violent. That is the violence that ensued after that with residential schools, which if you're not familiar, if you're listening from somewhere that doesn't know about residential schools, residential schools were uh, state-run, in some cases religiously run, schools set up specifically to indoctrinate Indigenous youth, Indigenous children, to the Canadian way of life. Now, this often meant that Indigenous children would be taken from their families' homes, in, in some cases in a forceful way, and they would have their identities stripped from them in order for them to become quote unquote Canadian. And this just tore families apart. It, it you know, there were, these institutions were rife with abuse, as though the very existence of them was not in itself a kind of abuse. Like on top of that abuse of being these assimilation machines, there was just rampant 
abuse of children within them. Now, it's ironic that the Trudeau government in the late 60s tried to put forward this, this entire system of assimilation because that is to just ignore the fact that for centuries before that, it was about extermination or assimilation in the eyes of Canada uh, with regards to Indigenous people. Like, there was no way of, of permitting like uh, a, a quasi-gentle form of assimilation. It was just like purely violent, which is just completely tone-deaf to have suggested that assimilation could even be possible. Now, there might be, you know, there are other culpable governments here, even the one, the administration right before Pierre Elliott Trudeau is, was, was part of this as well, at least starting this process. But it was met with so much resistance. The white paper that, you know, was ultimately shelved in 1971, given very little possibility to be put into action uh, for, 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 the, for the good. Now, it's extremely ironic because it was around the same time that, especially in post-World War II Canada, when corporations started to really expand their operations into more re remote places within Canada. And the very, the very fact that I'm using the term remote uh, is indicative of a colonial mentality. To think that, you know, there are like the four cities, four big cities in Canada, like the, you know, they're more than that, but like Montreal, Toronto, uh, Vancouver, and, um, you know, maybe Edmonton, like big, big cities, Ottawa, whatever. And then outside of that is just like desolate nothingness which contributes to the idea that it is just ripe for the picking. There was a term for this. It was like terra nullis, um, which was used to justify colonial expansion into the Americas, what would then be called the Americas, because it was just believed that there was nothing there. There were people there, but they weren't, they weren't civilized, according to these uh, colonizers, and therefore they didn't have a right to their own land. It was the colonizers who could just take whatever they wanted. And there were figures like John Locke, who was just, you know, screaming at the top of his lungs, go and take all this land. Like, why not? It's all there. There's nobody, there's nobody on it. It's fine. Of course, totally ignoring uh, the fact that people did live on it. But anyways, I digress. So around the same time in the late 60s, corporate expansion was starting to really, uh, really occur into the more lesser populated places within Canada. And what happened was... There was great resistance on the part of indigenous communities against this because corporate expansion, and we'll get into this more as we go on, but corporate expansion meant um, the desecration of sacred indigenous sites, be they uh, hunting areas, be they uh, places to respect the dead, to conduct any kind of traditional ceremonies, anything like that. None of that was going to be respected, not to mention resources, just being totally taken away from indigenous communities, just desecrating wildlife and so on. And the government did very little to actually accommodate these people, the, the federal government, certainly the provincial governments are culpable here too. They did very little to actually defend the rights of these people. And one example that screams out to me is like the Cree nation in northern Quebec, and there was an entire fiasco there where Quebec was trying to, um, Quebec was trying to have uh, talks with Cree leaders um, to essentially just help them exploit, help, help corporations exploit their land. 
So in the face of this, the federal government was doing very little to actually defend the rights of these people. And so their claim to be wanting uh, to assimilate them really showed that they actually didn't care about these people, that they were just interested in stealing from them, taking their land, taking their resources for corporate benefit, for the benefit of colonial Canada. Now, the indigenous opposition from various different nations at this time forced the government to shift its focus from this rhetoric of, it, of assimilation to one of accommodation and recognition. And there's, you know, there's, there's so many great documentaries about this. Uh, one, one that I really recommend for anyone interested in the way that Canada just completely disenfranchised indigenous communities, every opportunity it could get was, um, it's a documentary titled Tricker, Tricker Treaty. And it's about the ways that Canada was leveraging its, you know, imposition of its own judicial law to make it law that they could just take land from indigenous people who, you know, in some cases didn't speak the language because it, like, because it's not their language. And, you know, they were faced with a colonial regime that was bringing a lot of firepower. So there was very little negotiating power there. But so far, I've been talking about this as though we all know what a settler-colonial relationship means. Colonizer and colonized relationship or relations. And Coulthard defines it as a form of domination that has exerted itself through discursive and non-discursive strategies to secure a set of hierarchical social relations that disenfranchise indigenous people. Now, because there have been so many years of this occurring, that it can continue to occur in ways that are rendered transparent from any kind of moral judgment on the part of uh, settler Canadians. So they grow up in a world in which they are told what the law is, and they associate that law with being right. They then see anything that opposes that law as being wrong. So if Technically, through the law, indigenous land has been taken by Canada, apparently legitimately, according to the law, then that is just seen as having as being right. So opposition to that is assumed to be wrong. And this is just one way that despite the fact that it's just, in my eyes, immoral, uh, this is just one way in which structural oppression continues to operate without necessarily people saying, waking up in the morning and saying, wow, it would be great if I could just disenfranchise from some indigenous people today. The type of oppression that occurs is just so normal that it's not even seen. It's just, it just happens through the very systems that have been put in place through decades, through centuries of colonial occupation of indigenous lands. And there are so many different incentives for this. But really, one of the big ones is the drive to access territory and resources for the accumulation of capital. Because despite what the Canadian identity or Canadian view of itself really is, it is largely in tandem, it is working alongside corporate interests in order to further their interests, in order to seal corporate oil futures in northern parts of Alberta, for example, or seal any other possible resources for corporate extraction. 
Now, to understand this, Coulthard turns to Marx, specifically Marx's idea about primitive accumulation. Now, primitive accumulation was an idea put forward by Marx, or, or a criticism by Marx, of the ways in which that people like Adam Smith, who was trying to imagine how the economy worked, to figure out you know, the origins of capitalism and so on, Adam Smith believed that it was a general accumulation of wealth on the part of royalties that started to really get spread around almost by magic in order for people to have their own wealth that they could open their own businesses from there hire people and we could see the capitalist system unfolding marx intervenes to say that it's not quite so neat as that i mean the way the people actually secured resources enough so to get the capitalist system afloat to get it going it had to be violent. And so it meant colonizing different nations for their resources, taking what they had, enslaving people for the benefit of the colonizers. It meant taking people away from their own traditions and values. It meant getting rid or stripping people of their ability to care for themselves, to be able to grow on their own land you know, because their land was probably just taken from them, so they couldn't even grow their own crops. They began to steadily lose the knowledge of how to actually live, like humans are meant to live in on their, you know, with the with the earth, alongside the earth, with the resources that are made available to them. All of this was steadily taken away from them in violent fashion. So Coulthard uses this idea to understand the ways in which Canadian colonial expansion did the same thing. It stripped Indigenous people of their land, of their heritages, stripped them of their ability to negotiate with Canadian Canadian government or with colonizers, you know, if we go before even Canada's conception. All of these things worked to effectively undermine the autonomy of Indigenous populations. And this autonomy extends to their economic autonomy, their political autonomy, their judicial autonomy, and so on. Now, even though he's using, Coulthard is using Marx here, he sees some issues with Marx. And there are some very important things, very important problems with Marx, especially with regards to colonialism, where he says just outright, and for more on this, I've done an episode on, a couple of episodes on Annie Alumba's colonialism slash post-colonialism, where she expounds on this a little bit. But Marx says in almost verbatim that in the case of English colonization of India, that it was a good thing because it allowed, it liberated Indian people from their old traditions and brought them into essentially the capitalist form of production. Now, for anyone listening to this who isn't necessarily familiar with this channel or with stuff that I've said, that might seem totally strange. You might say, well, I thought that Marx didn't like capitalism. And that's not true. Marx thought that capitalism was a necessary stage in human evolution, human economic relations, to arrive finally, eventually, at communism. So it is necessary for all nations to enter into the capitalist mode of production, no matter how violent, like in the case of Indian colonization or the colonization of India by the English, no matter how violent, as long as people just adopted the capitalist model. So Coulthard, I think, 
legitimately, and this is a criticism I've always, I've always held, uh, sees this to be a pretty big problem in Marxist doctrine, where it treats people as a means to an end. It says that traditions, values, culture, none of that matters. Those are just means that have to be overcome to arrive at the final end that is communism. So Coulthard uses Marx to understand the historical relationships that birthed what we see today uh, in the colonial relations that we see today and the continued disenfranchisement of indigenous people. So Coulthard wants to use Marx for that. But he also wants to advocate for a decolonial project that will re-inaugurate, really revitalize indigenous sovereignty over land, culture, and people. So this isn't Marxist in that it doesn't see communism as being the end goal. It sees indigenous autonomy, indigenous sovereignty, a return back to the land as being the end goal. And decolonization is just going to be limited if it only accounts for economic exploitation. It must also account in Coulthard's work, which is really, I think, one of the most interesting things that he offers us is providing this intersexual analysis. But he suggests that we must also confront patriarchy and white supremacy when trying to imagine decolonization or possible decolonial futures. So Coulthard wants to approach colonialism not as an overtly violent force within Canada today, but as one that works through normalized coercion and control through the kind of structural forms of oppression that I mentioned earlier that don't assume very overt forms of violence, even though in some cases it does, like the police conflict, uh, inflict violence against Indigenous people every day. But that, you know, notwithstanding... The types of violence that Coulthard is more interested in, or not, I don't want to say more interested in, but he's interested in these other structural forms of oppression that go often go unseen. So despite the fact that a figure like Franz Fanon, who I've covered a lot on this channel, if you're interested and you can go check out all the episodes I've done on Fanon, even though Fanon engaged with overtly forms, with overt forms of colonial violence, because when Fanon was writing, he was thinking about Algeria, he was thinking about his own uh, history in Mountainique, which where, you know, their violent conflicts uh, unfolded, and there was violent, uh, violence inflicted against colonized people. Coulthard draws upon his work to understand the dynamics within Canada, even though they aren't quite as violent as the ways that uh, Fanon was thinking about Algeria, thinking about Mountainique, thinking about other uh, thinking about countries within Africa and thinking about Vietnam as well and, and other countries that have experienced colonialism. But specifically, Coulthard is interested in Fanon's critical look toward recognition as, as it is put forward by Hegel. So Fanon doesn't want to frame liberation as a process to be recognized by an oppressor, but to be free of the oppressor's gaze. And Coulthard wants to do the same. Now, for more on this, I've done an episode just a couple of weeks ago, I guess, on Fanon's critique of Hegel, which was meant to be a precursor to this episode, which I guess I should have mentioned earlier, but it's there. Uh, if you want to go hear more about Coulthard's, or I guess about Fanon's critique of Hegel that Coulthard is really uh, picking up on here. And that puts us here into chapter one. 
titled The Politics of Recognition in Colonial Contexts. So here, Coulthard is interested in using Fanon to understand how the post-69 period, that post-white paper effort to assimilate, you know, Pierre Elliott Trudeau trying to just pretend as though Indigenous people have no culture that's worth saving, that just it's just about getting to, them to assimilate within uh, a believed-to-be-better Canadian context, which is all, you know, it's as problematic as it sounds. Um, if problematic is even a term that can really encapsulate the horrors that are embedded within such claims. Coulthard wants to use Fanon to understand how despite, or despite these efforts, the post-69 period saw an emphasis on recognition and what exactly is wrong with recognition and how he can use Fanon to understand why recognition is just another form of colonial control. But how can, you know, how can recognition possibly be good in an asymmetrical relationship like this one? Like, clearly, you can't say something like, oh, the colonial state likes me, so therefore we're all good, uh, in the case of indigenous people. Like, it sustains the same hierarchical system that works every day to benefit the colonial state at the expense of indigenous people, whether or not they're being recognized. So to do this, he goes, Coulthard goes into detail about Fanon's critique of Hegel's master-slave dialectic, really really should be understood as the Lord Bondsman dialectic or the Lord's Bond, Lord Bondsman interaction, relationship, whatever. And to give you the very short story of that, what Hegel says is that despite how it seems in that dynamic between the Lord and the Bondsman, it is the Lord who's actually undermining themselves because they believe themselves to have arrived fully at like full enlightenment. Whereas it is the laborer, the bondsman, who has opened up the possibility because they have an ideal in mind that they can aspire to. That is the Lord or the master. And this permits them to embrace growth and change and spirit. And so what appeared at first glance to be an unequal power relation between the Lord and the bondsman, privileging the Lord, actually we see get turned on its head where it's actually the bondsman who's opened up to more possibility than the Lord. Now, Fanon hears this and he says, well, that's okay. This uh, mythical situation you are constructing of this, what seems to be a very happy bondsman and a very depressed Lord, that's all well and good. But can we really use this idea to understand colonial relations where there's a colonizer and a colonized person or a master and an enslaved person. And I like I it's been a I've covered the phenomenology of spirit if you're interested. I don't think that Hegel says in there that this is applicable to like colonial relations, but other people have taken this up. But in any case, Fanon is suggesting that within a colonial regime, within a colonial interaction, such a possibility for growth that Hegel affords to the bondsman is disallowed to the colonized person because any possibility they have for growth is undermined by colonial exploitation. Because in the Lord Bondsman interaction, it is still assumed that they are existing in their, their setting that they probably, they may have even grown up in. They understand the setting. Maybe they speak the same language too. 
all of these things are kind of taken for granted by Hegel that I think are important things to consider that could have really nuanced his discussion. But for Fanon, in a colonial colonial situation, colonized people are going to lose their culture in a lot of cases. They're going to lose their language or they'll be punished for speaking it. Like in the case of indigenous uh, populations in Canada, especially with indigenous children who were forced into residential schools, they're going to lose their entire history. And without history, is it really possible to attain spirit as per Hegel's formulation? If you don't have that base upon which to propel yourself into newness, what can really, you know, what can really be done in your quest for spirit as per Hegel's formulation? And the answer for Fanon is that really very little can happen. So this was kind of a long-winded way of saying that Fanon is not too appreciative of the application of Hegel's idea of the Lord Bondsman uh, dynamic to colonial relations. And Coulthard is really on the same page. Now we see such an idea play out in the work of Charles Taylor. Now Charles Taylor, for those of you, if those of you, some of you might know Charles Taylor, you might know Charles Taylor for being that Hegelian, pretty much, you, you know, he, he's a formidable dude. Um, for bringing Hegel into public consciousness or making Hegel popular back in the 70s, I guess, or earlier. I've actually seen him talk, but anyways, um, I don't, I don't know that much about Charles Taylor, but Charles Taylor has had a pretty significant role within Canadian policymaking where Charles Taylor in a very, like, I think that he was guided by good intentions, has done a lot of work in revealing the extent to which the Canadian state is not actually accommodating immigrants, isn't treating indigenous people very well, and so on. And, that, you know, these are, you know, he's done a lot of work on this stuff. He's done some good work. However, Coulthard is very clear to point out that there are some limitations in some of the assumptions that guide Taylor's work. So, for example, in his work, he, he advocates for indigenous sovereignty and autonomy, not at the level of, like, provincial uh, autonomy, mind you. So Charles Taylor is not saying that, like, indigenous nations should be, at the very least, become their own, like, province. He's not saying that, because uh, that would be, that'd be too much. Instead, he views indigenous sovereignty and autonomy as a way to maintain cultural difference and to foster, therefore, recognition of the, these cultural differences. So autonomy and sovereignty for Taylor is culturally, is, is only culture deep. It's only as deep as culture. Not economic sovereignty, not political sovereignty, not judicial sovereignty. So we're going to come back to this for now, but suffice it to say that it is ironic to frame recognition as something that is given you know, to give recognition already implies an unequal power imbalance or power balance where the dominant group is giving this possibility, is giving cultural autonomy, which just sustains, it maintains that hierarchical organization that just operates to disenfranchise indigenous people. And it's important to note, and this is something I'm very much guilty of, that when I discuss indigenous people, I very much frame indigenous populations as being 
this homogenous group, as though they all experience Canadian oppression in the same way. And that's just not true. Uh, for for one, um, like I have, I've my own experiences that have colored my have informed me about this, that um, really have been quite eye opening. But for example, the Inuit people have a very different relationship to colonial regimes as the Mohawk people, and this was partly due to just geography. We're being geographically more north, whereas all the kind of Canadian um, control centers are pretty well south, there was some distance there. And so their experience of colonial power was different. I'm not saying neither worse nor less, neither worse nor better, but different. And so it's important to keep this in mind. And as Coulthard lays it out, he goes, hey, we're going to get into more detail about this, but he, hailing from the Dene nation, has a very different um, experience or understanding of the, these types of interactions. And he's very cognizant of this, but it's just important for me to lay this out this way so that it, it doesn't seem like indigenous people are just some homogenous singular group. It's comprised of many different nations, languages, cultures, and so on. So it is more ironic here to use Fanon as a template for Taylor's effort. And Taylor does draw upon Fanon, being a Hegelian, he draws upon that stuff as well. So Taylor seems to forget Fanon's criticisms of recognition, of the politics of recognition and difference, given that these were employed to maintain racist dynamics and to subordinate black people all across the world. So the politics of recognition for Taylor just makes the question of indigenous autonomy and sovereignty one about their culture. He says, like, if we can allow them to embrace their culture, then that'll be it. Of course, it's not considering the economy or politics here. It's just like saying that their culture is all they really need. And this is like a way to just give a little bit, like a little compensation to people while exploiting them bigly, <laughs> while exploiting them just incalculably in other ways. So like, I think it's important to acknowledge, and this is something that Coulthard, I think, would also writes, in fact, is that it's not like what Taylor's doing is necessarily bad. It's just one step in a bigger process. And if it's recognized as such, like, I don't know if Taylor viewed his work as such, I kind of doubt it, but he may have viewed it as just being like the first step in a broader process of indigenous sovereignty and decolonization. But it is like good. It's a good thing to recognize culture and, and difference. But, you know, like I've already intimated, it doesn't strike at the heart of the structural problems and inequalities that persist, like, you know, beyond just cultural recognition. And it's also ironic in all of this because there are so many indigenous leaders and activists who call for an end to Western hegemony and capitalist exploitation, but Taylor only focuses on cultural identity just not even listening to the broader claims, the broader criticisms that these people are leveling, just making it purely a matter of cultural identity. So we must ask ourselves, what is being recognized in someone else who is born into colonialism? Because colonialism has for centuries worked to destroy indigenous cultures and identities. So after so many centuries, 
where indigenous peoples and, and have just been totally, many of them have been just been eradicated. What does it mean to demand recognition or to allow for recognition almost in the ashes of colonial violence? Which isn't to say that indigenous nations and cultures don't persist today. They very much do. And they are very lively. Like the, the you can go to so many different parts of uh, colonial Canada and find so many different shows, art, music, just by so many different indigenous communities. But if recognition is placed as the end goal for Canadian politics, the Canadian state, it is going to frame indigenous people as being like frozen in time, where it's going to imagine indigenous people as having a certain identity, and then indigenous people are then going to be forced to just kind of freeze themselves with that identity lest they're just going to find themselves alienated once again by the Canadian state if they start to mutate, if they start to transform culturally, which cultures do. Like, no culture is just going to stay the same forever. That would just be silly. And so when we ask what is really being recognized here, we are concerned with the ways that the colonial state is going to limit possibilities for future growth, development, change that any culture might undergo, in fact, will undergo. Now, on the flip side, like, it, by contrast, if there was an actual concerted effort to allow for political, social, economic autonomy, culture will just flourish so much better on its own because there would be a way for all of these things to come together, to work alongside culture and to work fluidly with one another to inform all of these things, not to just say that, oh, culture is this thing that can just be bracketed off from economic conditions, from political conditions, and it can just be frozen in time and everything else can just keep working around it. Like, it takes, it, there's no one on earth who would, I think, agree with that. Like, and this isn't something that's necessarily um, listened to by the Canadian government because it would demand more serious engagement with Indigenous people and more serious consideration of how to give land back, which they clearly don't want to do. And it also reveals the another problematic element of the whole politics of recognition through Hegel thing. Because in this dynamic, it's not as though Canada is looking for Indigenous approval. Like, they don't care. They just don't care. Uh, they're, it's just as the... <laughs> As the history shows, they just don't care. And so it's not as though recognition is really playing out in a reciprocal way. It's always in one direction, always about the Canadian state approving what Indigenous people, how they're going to act, and then saying, okay, we recognize that only after they've approved it. So Coltheart isn't like totally on board with Fanon either in all of this. Coltheart is not totally on board with all of the rhetoric of violence that Fanon espouses, where Fanon very clearly suggests that decolonization is a violent struggle. Coulthard wants to leave some room for other possibilities, uh, which, you know, can possibly be said that he himself is just taking like a more liberal route to, uh, to just get away from the necessary solutions. Like, I don't know what a current Fanon scholar, scholar might say, but in any case, I think that Coulthard would be totally aware of that. But in any case, what he offers us instead, and this will come out later, especially at the end, 
is a roadmap for uh, effectively engaging in decolonization, for having decolonization occur and to promote indigenous sovereignty at all levels, which is really his goal. Like that that's the what he has in mind for indigenous nations within Canada and, and across the world. And yeah, that's going to put us here into chapter two. And so I'll stop here. If you like what I did, you can like, share, subscribe. If there's anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I said that was problematic or that I, I mischaracterized in any way, uh, I'd really love to hear about it. If I participated in any violence against indigenous people, if you're willing to put in that work to teach me about it, um, maybe there was something in my language, like a word that I used that I shouldn't have. Uh, I would love to hear about it if you're willing to put in that work. Um, yeah, but on that note, catch you next time. Take care.